This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 855 AM, Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Turn the mic up. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the land of the lyrebird. This is the Beyond Zero Emission Show and Salut Babette. Tonight's Beyond Zero Emission Show is about how forests draw down greenhouse gases. Now it turns out we have allies in the forests in the southern corner of Australia. The lyrebirds have a vested interest there. When the first Aboriginal people came into this cool, wet forest, they must have laughed to hear the courting song of the lyrebird. To attract a female, he imitates all sorts of creatures. He laughs like a kookaburra. He shows off. And then there's the lead beater's possum. She has a vested interest in those tree hollows we heard about a few shows ago. You only find those tree hollows in old trees. So these animals are our allies. And on their behalf, hundreds of groups have sprung up, like Friends of the Koala, the Wilderness Society, the Nature Conservation Society and Lawyers for Forests. Overarching them are two big visionary alliances. In New South Wales, there's one called the Great Southern Forest Alliance. Now, they, if you look at the map of New South Wales, that whole southeast corner, they want to turn that into a linked-up forest. We also have the Great Forest National Park in Victoria, which is not yet a reality, but it is a reality on the map to many of the people who have been campaigning for it. Beyond Zero Emissions Radio has looked at the land sector emissions quite a lot this year. We, we've just um, focused on the land because that's where a lot of the emissions are coming from. And in the Bond Climate Com- Con- Conference coming up in November, one of our previous guests, who's Professor Brendan Mackey, he will be presenting there. So we've been trying to keep you in touch with what's happening. There's not just um, energy and just coal and gas. It's not just those things. It's also about the land sector and drawing down emissions. That's why we call beyond zero emissions. We have to go beyond um, just having zero emissions. And the forests are our great ally in this effort. Uh, we have one of the colleagues of Brendan Mackey on the show tonight. Her name is Dr. Heather Keith, and she can tell you the carbon stock in your forest. She can put a dollar value on it. Their research has shown for the first time in the world that there is a greater dollar value in preserving and extending uh, uh, the life of a forest in the ground than in logging it. So our aim is to increase the carbon stock and every angle I can find will help. So we've called on the lyrebirds today, we've called on the scientists and we're also going to talk to the campaigners. Andy's here with us 
on the panel. Hey. Hi, Andy. Thanks, Andy. And also we have Kurt. Who's your guest, Hello. Kurt? Uh, I will be joined by Daisy Barham, who is the campaign's director for the Nature Conservation Council of New South Wales. Okay, she's a great campaigner, Daisy. And I think we'll go straight to Paul. We're going to New South Wales. Paul Payton represents um, the Great Southern Forest Group. Are you there, Paul? I am indeed, Vivian, and thanks for having me. It's a fabulous opportunity, and it's a great show that you guys are running. Oh, we, we love it too. We meet such good people in the in the uh, working of it. Now, listen, I believe you have about 150,000 supporters. Is that uh, exaggerated? <laughs> One might wonder, but if I look at the number of organisations we have, there's about 26 now, and just another one's come on board this morning. Uh, working with the members who belong to them, their supporters, their Facebook friends and so forth and so on, I've extrapolated without doubling up. It's close to 170,000 now. And that indeed is quite a surprise. And yet I, I believe it's quite a genuine number, quite authentic. Yeah. yeah. So when we spoke to David Gallen uh, yes. about his film Understory, many of the listeners were touched by one fact that he just mentioned, and it was in the film as well, about those hollows in trees. So a couple of people said to me, I couldn't believe it that it takes 200 years for a tree to produce that sort of a hollow and that animals are so much needed. Even those big eagles need to nest in yeah. there and little possums, all sorts of even reptiles will nest in there. So it's very vital to keep the old growth forest and um, I think around your area some of them have very entrancing names like Tantawangalo and Mimosa Rock and you know it's just terrible to think of places that are so necessary for animals, enthralling for us if we ever are able to go in there, um, are being just logged for pulp mill. And um, I think it's very carbon dense as well and a biodiversity hotspot. So can you tell us what a momentum is being gained around this idea for a great southern forest alliance? What will it look like and how, how close are you to your goal? It's about 430,000 hectares that we're talking about of state-owned native forests. So that's a patchwork of about 75 forest coops or um, separate named forests across the southeast from Eden, in the, uh, just above the, southern, the Victorian border, all the way up the coast to Nowra, and then inland west to Tumut. And within that triangle is a patchwork which is in danger of being fragmented. And that's what we've got at the minute. There's native forests are stringing all the way through their corridors in existence and so on. Yet our challenge is the um, intention to roll over what's called the Regional Forest Agreements in 2019-2021, which would then expose this over 400,000 hectares to industrial logging and fragmenting of those corridors and indeed disrupting the whole uh, habitat of all of the species, including the, the lead, lead beast of possum, as you highlighted. Mm. The hollows will go, well, indeed, I don't wish to dwell on the destruction that could happen apart from that which has already happened. And so our little group, the Great Southern Forest, is really quite adamant that we have viable alternatives and not only just locking up the forest because that doesn't work, we don't wish more national parks because they're being threatened as well. Similarly, reserves, they come and they go. We're looking to implement, albeit we are recommending, a totally viable arrangement for employment, for habitat, 
for conservation, for sequestration of carbon indeed. And this in the southeast here is one of the deepest uh, ecological centres of uh, forest and native environment in Australia. And uh, indeed because forests are so valuable, that's why we're working to change the paradigm, change the thinking around a forest as being a forest with its inherent value, beauty, uh, pleasure and so forth rather than just a woodlot and a production site, which mm. is what it is actually being viewed at, or forests in general are being viewed at at the moment. Um, what contribution are the traditional owners making to your plans for this forest restoration? A very good question, and indeed we've been talking to a number of groups. We are at present um, awaiting some responses from uh, state um, well, relevant group, shall I say. I, I, I don't have anything firm to say on that mm. at the minute, though there has been interest and respect of what we're trying to do and indeed commendation of what we're trying to do. Um, in one sense, we've come, because we're dealing with, can I put it, the white fella thinking, we've come from a scientific basis, from a research basis and from evidence basis so that we can present what that might look like in a rationale in a, a Western thinking. Mm. So we haven't actually been able to, or we haven't, well, literally, I suppose we haven't had time to engage deeply with the indigenous groups. So I know I'm, that is an ongoing process, so I will re be able to report, I believe, greater support from them. This is our wish and our trust in a number of months, but I really haven't got a figure or a, a clear direction on that. No. Well, I'm sure we'll, we'll come back to this story another time, and they certainly figured, I think it was the UN people figured yeah. in the uh, film yeah. over the last oh. battles oh. that you've been. This has been going over oh. several people's lifetimes, so Absolutely. it's an ongoing thing. But it's, it's rather worrying that you've got this uh, regional forest uh, yes, agreement agree. being renegotiated. Uh, are you part of the negotiating? I mean, is the, uh, your group represented in negotiations well, we've been offered a place at the table, as it were, mm. though, in fact, it is now fairly common across environmental groups and aware people that the regional forest agreement process has failed. It is not being reported. It is the evidence, the actual actuality of the impact is not reaching Parliament House, state or federal. So consequently, we really do not want to ask or talk about shifting deck chairs on the Titanic. Yep. We want to actually turn the Titanic or, in fact, get off the mm. ship. Mm. So that we're really able to, and we've been invited to by a number of ministers and their advisors that we've met with, yet it's not part of our approach because it really is, as I say, um, futile. And it, it, they've been disputed all over the place publicly. <laughs> Okay, well, you're, uh, I think the, the, the contest in these forests is always over jobs, isn't it? And profits yeah. from wood pulp and wood chip. Yes. And yeah. you're asking governments to rethink, and I think it's yeah. probably very new thinking for most people, that a few hundred thousand hectares will be repurposed from timber getting yes. to carbon sequestration and tourism yes. and all those other things. Yes. What's the main argument, would you say, for the workers who've, who've, who are living there locally and can't really see themselves being repurposed in any way? Mm. Mm. Um, if we hark back a bit into um, history, we used to, here in New South Wales, export tens of thousands of koala pelts, would you believe, mm. to the US. For years that went on, koala pelts. 
Can you imagine it today? Oh, I've seen what photos <laughs> of them, Paul. I've seen photos of great big dray loads covered in, in, in fur. Extraordinary. Well, guess what? It took an external, in, in fact, a, a person with a bit more vision than um, what we had here to say, stop, no, we will not import any more uh, koala pelts. So what I'm harking towards is the fact that jobs have been in whaling. Jobs have been in koala pelts. Jobs have been in fishing. And indeed, there was a situation with, with um, fishing licenses done here. There was a, a overfishing, so the government stepped in and rearranged things, actually bought out licenses, gave people a retirement package, or gave them an opportunity to start a new business elsewhere. Mm. We see a similar opportunity, though we're not being prescriptive about who does what and how much, yet we know that this sort of transition has happened fairly, really, ultimately, painlessly uh, in the past. And we're seeing a similar sort of process, and really it comes down to about 45 or actually probably closer, to be honest, to maybe 75, 80 jobs that we're talking about, people who are full-time engrossed in that industry, okay. maybe forest industry. So, yeah. Paul, my last question is about yeah. um, biofuels, and I know that you want a national ban on yeah. using native forest wood for power production or mm -hmm. biofuels, mm -hmm. and I know this is a really big issue at the moment in Europe, and they're going to the mm -hmm. conference at Bonn, the mm -hmm. climate conference, and we're going to be represented by Professor Brent and Mackie. Um, he's going to be talking there about why we shouldn't be using biofuels because they're a big driver of deforestation yeah. and yet most people That's say right. to me, well look, burning wood is carbon neutral because uh, more wood grows, you just, it just replaces itself so it's carbon neutral, it's not as bad as coal blah blah blah. Yeah, so what's yeah, your yeah. argument there? Well, to be honest I guess we would have to side very much with Brendan Mackie. Uh, we cannot see any viability in trashing our forests simply to create firewood and or biomass. Um, at the moment, we're told recently that a, quite an unusually large percentage of timber that's coming out of native forests is already going to the firewood market. And this is a bit of a, a wake-up call because um, we only thought it was going to woodship, which is offshore uh, predominantly. Um, so really, we're, we're anti and anything to do with biomass coming from the forest. Okay. Well, look, I'm sorry to have hurried you now. We've got uh, Heather Keith coming up later, yes. but I'm sure we'll come back to you in the new year, especially after that conference, and there'll be more developments. So thank you so much for talking to us today, Paul. Thank you, Vivian. All the best. Thank you. Cheers. That was Paul Payton from the South East Forest Alliance. Now we're going to a scientist. I pre-recorded to talk with her. Her name is Heather Keith. Heather Keith is a scientist, she's an ecologist, and she's specialising at the moment in finding out the dollar value of forests, as we depend on them to draw down carbon dioxide. She's at the Fenner School of Environment and Society at ANU, and I'm going to ask her how much our forests are worth in dollars. So welcome, Heather. Uh, hello, Vivian. I'm glad you could talk to us because this is going to be contrasting with the campaigners who want to talk about all the other benefits of forests, but you're going to tell us the actual carbon value. So your research uses environmental accounting, which is apparently internationally recognised. So how do you put a price on a tree? Well, you can put a price on, on the forest, on trees in the forest, and that
that's what we have done. But it is important to recognise that it's not the complete price. So we quantify a forest in physical terms and how these change over time. So things like the, the amount of carbon stored, the water yield, the timber production, diversity of species. So when we're assigning a monetary value or a price on the ecosystem services like carbon and water where we can put a price on them that these are goods and services that are being used within the economy currently and so we can value them but there are all these other values that are also important. You studied the tall wet forests of central Victoria and produced a graph, I thought that was the best bit, showing in, uh, contributions to GDP that water was worth, for example, $310 million, agriculture $312 million, tourism $260 million, and carbon storage at the moment is worth $49 million per year. And this contrasts with the products of forest logging, which are mostly used for paper production at the moment. That was only $12 million. Has this graph been a clincher when you talk to government people? Well, we're hoping so. I mean, we, we have started talking to people in government departments and I think it's, it has been very instructive for them to realise just these relative values and how much higher the water, the carbon, the tourism is compared with the small production from the native forest timber industry. The numbers and the graph that we've produced, they're all consistent. It's, it's comparing like with like for each industry. But there are people who uh, consider that it's not including the whole industry and so they're disputing our numbers. Mm. Well, I believe the carbon storage in that particular forest is, is fabulous. And could you just tell me why or how you measure the carbon that you could say is in those tall forests of Victoria? Oh, well, it starts off going into the forest and to quite a, an, a large number of sites. We, we actually had 54 sites that we measured in different forest areas across the Central Highlands and specifically identifying sites that were different ages in different parts of the landscape uh, and measured all the trees, measured their diameters, their heights, uh, the different species, the different layers, so not just the eucalypts but the mid-storey and understory trees and shrubs, the coarse woody debris or logs on the ground and, and the understory and litter. So a lot of different components to calculate the biomass stocks in these forests. And then we scaled that up across the landscape uh, according to the forest type and environmental conditions at our individual site. We also used hundreds of inventory plots that had been established and the data collected by Victorian State Forests over many years and this is inventory data that they use for calculating wood yields and so this gave us sites over a much greater range of environmental conditions as well as our very specifically measured sites. Mm. Well, from a climate change perspective we want to know the capacity of a forest, you know, how much we thinking of it in carbon storage. It sounds very crass to call a place a carbon sink but at the moment that's what we urgently need and I've read David Lindenmeyer's work and he says this ecosystem is close to collapse. It's a lot of the old wood, the old 
growth is now, I think, about only 1% of what used to be there is remaining. So there's an urgency on that level, on the ecosystem level, but on the climate level, we need to maximise the carbon store where we've got it. So how would you think would be the best way to manage it? I know the Emissions Reduction Fund doesn't pay anyone to manage native forests yet, but eventually they may. And when they do, what would be the best way to manage this forest so that it doesn't collapse? Well, protecting the forest and allowing the trees to grow and not harvest them is the first most important aspect of managing this forest. That would not only improve the the habitat for the many species there, but from our climate change mitigation point of view, it would allow the carbon stocks to continually increase and accumulate over time. And so we would then return the carbon stocks of this region to what they are in the old growth forest over many decades and, and centuries. And I think this would mean jobs, wouldn't it? Would there, what sort of work would that involve? Well, any landscape needs to be managed, um, just like national parks are managed now. So it would be the same type of people and jobs that are required. So maintaining roads and, and fire trails, controlling feral animals and weeds, man- maintaining firefighting capacity. It would be if it was a national park and open to the public which would be really really good just maintaining um, the area and and the the people using the visitors using that national park just i imagine you um, will have seen a lyrebird somewhere in your travels through the forest would you like to tell me about that because i've called this program in the land of the lyrebird did you ever see a lyrebird uh yes i have seen a lyrebird in the forest and they're, I mean, they're absolutely magnificent. You hear them first because you hear a, range, a great range of bird songs and, and start by thinking, oh, could there be that many different species of bird all in this one small area? And then you realise it's all coming from the, the one bird. A very clever mimic. Yeah. I put a, a YouTube attached to the podcast so listeners can see that someone's captured the bird in full flight imitating kookaburras and going well I just thought it was so so much fun and so precious and when you think of this I'm just keen about the carbon but really these birds are our allies and the Ledbetter possum all these ones that need they absolutely need that old forest and they need everything to stay intact and how beautiful and wonderful it would be to make it possible for more tourists to just go there and just enjoy it because I think that's I've never seen a live bird they seem to be very shy and dash away but well, they are shy and um, you need to know sort of the places where they're likely to be, particularly in moist gullies. They're also really important for maintaining the ecosystem. So you see in the forest floor, you see their scratchings in the litter, so they're looking for grubs to eat, but the way they turn over the litter and mix it up with the soil is really important for decomposition. So all these different species have their own role in maintaining the processes of the ecosystem. Yeah, just to finish, uh, Heather, there's a conference coming up in November at Bonn, the uh, next, next climate conference, and I know in the land sector discussions they're going to be talking about the accounting rules. Do you think, what do you think will be the best change in rules to allow more carbon sequestration in forests? Recognising the value of primary forests is really critical and that the carbon stored in these forests is what we would call a high quality in that it's a high density of stock, 
high number of tonnes of carbon per hectare, but it's also resilient in that natural ecosystems are resilient to disturbance. So there may be wildfire or windstorms, but these forests are able to self-regenerate and maintain their carbon stocks over very long times. And this is very different to plantations where they're single species and even aged, do not have as high carbon stocks and are far more vulnerable to loss by disturbance. How do you protect against fire? The, the gaps that have been created in the forests in the Central Highlands or in any other region because of clear felling or, or any form of logging and then younger stands of trees, a major way that the then the edge of the old growth forest dries out and it lets the wind in. So it's a major source of um, why fires, once they're ignited and spreading, will be more severe even into the old growth forest. We are using services, goods and services from the environment that haven't been included in any way in our current national accounts or business models and that we need to be accounting for them in order to recognise their value and that if we degrade or lose these ecosystem services then this is a great cost not only to our economic activity but general human well-being and this is one of the great advantages of the system of environmental economic accounting that we can try and bring the environment into our everyday decision making about how we use natural resources. Thank you very much. Well, that was Heather Keith, Dr. Heather Keith. She's an ecologist um, at the Fenner School of Environment and Society at ANU. Thank you very much, Heather. Welcome back, listeners. This is the Beyond Zero Emissions Show, and you're listening to Radio 3CR. Our next guest is Steve Meacher. He's with us now from the Great Forest National Park. They have a splendid vision of joining up the forests in Vic the Victorian highlands, and 89% of Victorians support this plan. But tell us how you have been involved, Steve, and, and describe some of the places before we get into the politics of it. Yes, well, um, the idea goes back, uh, in, in fact, several decades, the idea of having a park. And uh, it, it centred really around the rediscovery of Leadbitter's Possum in 1961. And it was recognised then that in order to protect this uh, rare species, that land needed to be set aside. But nothing really happened, and there, there were public campaigns um, both in the 70s and the late 80s, around 1990, and nothing really happened. But then, um, with the logging that occurred after the Black Saturday fires in 2009, of course, um, that alerted a lot of people in the Central Highlands to the fact that we were actually losing the last of our pristine forests. And it became clear that the only way we were going to be able to save them was to set them aside in some sort of protected area. So um, I worked with uh, Sarah Reese of my environment and others to come up with the idea of a Great Forest National Park, uh, which would be an area in the Central Highlands that um, protects the forests that we have left from ongoing logging. 
Well, I saw on YouTube, and I think listeners might like to look it up, it's called The Science Behind the Great Forest National Park, and it's by Professor David Lindenmeyer, and he says that only 1% of the old-growth forest is left. And I hadn't realised before that 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 an ecosystem that is near collapse is what it's about. You know, we're talking about uh, something, a huge amount of land that has been so damaged and now stricken by fire that it really needs rescue. And he said that the time for roundtable talks with thick forests and Nippon paper and the CFMEU and all of them is over. What do you think? Oh, that's absolutely right. Um, What a lot of people don't realise is that In 1939, there was another huge fire through these forests, uh, now known as the Black Friday fires, and in those fires, around 85% of the landscape was burned. And then those trees started to to regenerate after the, the Black Friday fires, so they're around 80 years old now. And those are the forests that have been logged for, well, half a century now. Um, and with the intensity of the logging that's happened in the Central Highlands, because it's not evenly spread across the entire Victorian forest estate, it's focused in the ash forest of the Central Highlands, and it's been so intense that after a half century of that logging in these regenerating forests, um, almost all the viable timber has actually been logged out now. Um, the, the pieces that are left that the, the industry is so keen now to log out are also the pieces of forest that are of the greatest ecological value. And if we continue logging in what is left of these forests, as we've been logging them for the last 50 years, then yes, we are going to lose this unique ecosystem which is the Mount Ash ecosystem of the Central Highlands of Victoria. It doesn't occur in this particular combination of species anywhere else and it has been assessed as being critically endangered. Yeah. Well, I'd recommend to listeners a book by the historian called Tom Griffiths. I think it's called The Great Ash Forests, and I just read that in preparation for this. And he, I think, to make us understand that there are changes in culture and changes in attitude to forests, and when the first pioneers came here they marveled too at those great giant trees and there were lots of guest houses and rambling clubs and people went to see them and they probably thought that they would never be able to make much of an impact on them and then the farms started to be cut out of the forest and a lot of logging happened there and then that 1939 fire is a centrepiece of his book and he looks into what the Royal Commission at the time found and a lot of the fires had been started by arson and just by people having no value on the trees, not seeing the, not understanding anything like um, ecology in those days. And we've just had a, um, a speaker on this show called Dr. Heather Keith, and she explained how it's absolutely clear now that the forest is worth more to us in dollar terms as much as for its own ecology, and it's much more left standing than if it is um, cut down. And for me, the urgent need is to maximise carbon stocks 
to prevent worse climate disruption. But I wonder when you talk to people, I know you must go to a lot of meetings about this <coughs> campaigning for this uh, Great Forest National Park vision. I wonder why isn't the carbon stock more valued? Is it just an idea that's waiting for its time or people just don't get what carbon stocks mean? I, I think it, it is quite a, a complex idea um, for a lot of people and also they have been um, told that forests are renewable because new trees can grow. But when you grow a new tree, in order to replace a tree that was two or three hundred years old, you have to wait two or three hundred years. You cannot replace a three hundred year old tree by putting a seedling in the ground. And people don't understand that. They, they, they've been basically misled into believing that ancient forests are a renewable resource. And of course, they're absolutely not. Um, trees, in essence, are renewable in time, but the sorts of forests we're talking about have developed over long periods of time. And the problem with clear-fell logging is that it pretty well destroys all the other elements of the ecosystem. It takes out around 90% or more of the, the fern trees, for instance, and they're the things that shade the ground and keep it cool and damp at ground level. So then you actually change the entire ecosystem. And, of course, when the loggers have actually clear-felled an area, they don't intend then to leave it for the next two or three hundred years to totally re regenerate anyway. They intend that they will then manage it as an industrial forest and will uh, start thinning again in 20 to 30 years and clear-fell it again in 50 to 80 years. So in fact, a mature forest has been removed and if it's left in the hands of the industry, it will never actually come back to being a mature forest again. Mm. I describe it as being kept in a state of perpetual adolescence where it doesn't then provide the ecological um, opportunities for the whole suite of wildlife, the things like cockatoos and owls and possums and gliders that live in the hollows of those ecologically mature trees. Mm. Well, just as an adolescent grows into a mature person, you know, the, you think of the carbon stock in those um, trees is like the knowledge in a mature person. I mean, th that carbon stock apparently is fabulous in that forest. It's it, it is, and it's the ancient forests that hold the highest carbon stock. There's a bit of a myth that when trees ha are mature or over-mature, they are actually absorbing less carbon, and it, it, it's absolutely not true because of their size. Those trees are actually absorbing more carbon. And, of course, we, we're already now facing climate change. Um, we've already raised the temperature of the planet uh, by almost one degree. So what we're seeing is that when the coops are, are logged and then they are reseeded for regeneration, we're seeing increasing regeneration failure because we're trying to plant back on a particular site trees that actually germinated there 80 years or more ago. And it's possible that with climate change, those seedlings are being actually put climatically in the wrong place. So we're seeing failure of regeneration. The best thing to do to protect the forests that we now have is to not log the trees that are already established 
on a site. They've already got their root systems. They already communicate with other trees around them through the mycorrhizal fungi that connect the root systems under the ground. And that's what's so hard to re-establish. So if we want to maintain the, the carbon uh, sequestration activity of a living forest and also protect the carbon that's all already sequestered in the, the trees and in the soil, what we need to do is leave the living forests standing. Okay. Well, look, um, Steve, uh, one of the things that I've noticed in all your brochures, and I've heard David Lind and I speak about this, is tourism. You know, the idea of having this marvellous park um, would attract people and it would be a money-making thing and it would be a, you know, very good employment uh, opportunity for people. But I, I rather like the idea of tourism because I've never really been very often into that forest because I don't have a car and it's hard for me to get right in there and I'd love to see some of those big trees. I don't think I've ever seen them. And my cousin was telling me about a tour he did in New Zealand where a Maori guide took them into the forest at night and told them to keep their eyes down and she talked about the king of the forest and how it was connected to their culture and then she told them to turn their torches on and point them up, up, up like that and he said he was just in awe to see a giant cowry tree and that was the king of the forest and I'd love to see some tourist ideas like that so what, what ideas have your group got for tourism to invite people in? Well all sorts of ideas and many of them are already being acted upon um, for instance the Wilderness Society has put out a self-guided tour map to encourage people from Melbourne to come out here to the forest it's only an hour and 15 minutes drive from the centre of Melbourne. So it's very easy to get to. You can even um, take the train out to Lilydale and then uh, it's possible to meet up with other people or join an organised tour. There are various groups that are organising tours and even buses bringing people out um, so that you can come and experience these forests for yourself because um, they, they really are extraordinary. The mountain ash tree is actually the tallest flowering plant on earth and historically, they were t the tallest of all the trees on Earth. Now, the tallest of the mountain ash were logged in the 19th century and have now been lost, which is why we now talk about the, the tallest trees being the, the giant redwood sequoias of the California um, uh, mountains. But in fact, Australia once had the tallest trees on Earth. And if we were to respect and protect these forests, we could once again make that claim and the tourists would be flocking to see those extraordinary trees. Already people who come and visit these forests um, just gaze in awe up at these trees and the big ones now are 70 or 80 metres tall. But the biggest ones in history were twice that height. I mean, it's just extraordinary to imagine a tree 140 metres tall that's about as tree as a tall can, uh, sorry as tall as a tree can be <laughs> because physically there are limits on how tall a tree can grow and this species the mountain ash was right 
on the boundaries of that physical limit. Mm. So they are extraordinary living things. And it just seems ridiculous that the best thing we can think of is doing with, uh, of doing with them is to cut them down and pulp them to make photocopy paper. Oh, all right. On that note, we'll leave you, Steve. Thank you very much. I think it's reflex paper we shouldn't buy, isn't it? Um, that's one of the worst, yes. It, it takes more than 50% of the pulp. Okay, thank you very much, Steve. Um, really good to talk to you. So that was Steve Meacher from the Great Forest National Park. And now over to Kurt. Let me quickly outline a vision for the state of New South Wales by the year 2090. The snowy, the snowy mountains are bare all year round. Agricultural output is reduced. The arable land ravaged by flood and drought. For long stretches of the year, outside is hostile as temperatures soar to 4.3 degrees above their current levels. We cannot expect our usual sanctuary in the beaches as our beautiful coastline has been lost to seas rising nearly a metre. This has also led to diminished fish populations that have lost estuaries, wetlands and salt marshes. Inland, our forests, now dry and brittle and increasingly susceptible to firestorms that burn with increasing ferocity, frequency and length. Our natural, unique biodiversity has been denuded and replaced by an introduced feral duoculture of the cat and the fox. This vision is all the more chilling because it is the future in store for New South Wales if we do nothing to attack climate change change. I am joined by Daisy Barham, who is the campaign's director for the Nature Conservation Council of New South Wales. They have just released a report detailing this dystopian reality awaiting the new, the new South Wales state if, by 2090 if we do nothing. Daisy, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks very much. Great to be here, Kurt. Now, this report, Daisy, is clearly intended as a wake-up call. As a proud former New South Welshman, I found it particularly disconcerting. What's interesting to me is your organisation is primarily concerned with conservation, yet climate change has become an issue of conservation in New South Wales. Is that right? Yeah, that's spot on. What we wanted to do with this report was take the reality of what is projected to happen if we don't act on climate change, yeah. to take that out of the scientific journals and put it in a form that is digestible by the residents of New South Wales and of Australia more broadly. Mm. And many of those projections which you've just covered in your wonderful introduction are truly shocking. We've been touring regional New South Wales talking to people about the impacts of climate change uh, and they're shocked uh, because we don't often get told about the local impacts of climate change. You know, mm-hmm. we hear about broadly the planet will be warmer, the, you know, polar ice caps will melt. We hear some of that sort of news, but we don't hear it in the context of, well, what does it mean for our local patch? And so that's, I think, what why this report is just so important. Yeah, I mean, uh, one piece of information that was new to me was how climate change aids in introduced uh, the feral species growth. Can you can you explain exactly how that works? Yeah, good question. Um, it is particularly shocking part of the report. Um, climate change aids feral species because it puts the natural healthy environment under a lot of stress. We know that feral species, whether they're animals or plants, invasive species, um, you know, re- can really take advantage when an ecosystem is under a lot of stress. So you can see like a lot of um, pests and invasive species um, 
you know, first get into national parks by the roads that we that we bulldoze through national parks so we can get in to visit them. Um, and they get into those areas because they're already really heavily disturbed. Yep. So the natural kind of balance of ecosystems is offset. And so climate change will put ecosystems under a lot of stress. And yep. so that's why they'll be more vulnerable to, to pests and disease. It's pretty tough reading to go through this report, but it's, it's necessary, but still pretty difficult. Whether, I mean, you, the, it paints a really, um, vivid, picture which is intercut with profiles of the individual threatened species like the mountain pygmy possum um, that eats moths and fruits and seeds and can only live in the Australian Alps so if temperatures rise uh, we're not going to have a snow season in Australia and they'll have nowhere to go Um, the usual solution of creating migratory corridors for animals doesn't apply there are there any any other creatures where rehoming is not an option yeah, I think it's a really good point. Like the Australian Alps, the scientists predict, predict the snow season is going to contract by up to 96% by the middle of this century, so by 2050. Um, so that is, you know, we're looking at a fundamental ecosystem change um, for that whole area. But there are certainly are other species that are going to be really imp- impacted by climate change. Um, the Regent honey eater is a, um, a beautiful bird that's critically endangered in New South Wales. Um, and it's at risk. Um, it's a sort of beautiful black, white, and yellow bird, yep. a honey eater. Um, and the reason why it's at threat from climate change is um, because it relies migratory and it relies on certain species of eucalypts, like flowering at a certain time of year, to coincide with its breeding cycle. And yet, with climate change, the ecologists are predicting that well, that flowering season for eucalypts will change, and so mm-hmm. we're going to see you know the region honey eater arriving to the forests and woodlands where they expect their trees to be ready for them to eat uh, and they will have um, already flowered and so they will have missed that critical season. And so, you know, what will happen to the region honey eater? Will they be able to find another um, species that's flowering at the same time that they mm-hmm. happen to be able to eat? Uh, or will they simply starve? And so these are the kind of, like, I think quite um, complicated interactions that we're going to find with climate change you know, it's like you, you pull one string in your yeah. thread in your jumper and you just never quite know where that's going to go. Yeah. And so yeah. I think we can expect a lot more of that from climate change. It's Yeah, it's a really unflinching report, especially in a portrayal of uh, its disastrous future. And the, you said before how you liked, you wanted to, the purpose of this report was to really localise it and make people that live in New South Wales aware. Um, there's one graph in there which compares the greenhouse pollution per person with the global average which was five tons per person per year and the new south wales average was 18 tons per person per year um how much responsibility does the individual resident of new south wales have compared to the politicians yeah that's a really great question um the responsibility lays with all of us to deal with climate change and we've all created this crisis we all need to solve it um but what my firm views are and the views of the Nature Conservation Council is mm-hmm. that, you know, all of us, if every single one of us put solar panels on our roof and yep. did our bit, that would make a difference, but it's not enough. We really need to see high-level action from our politicians yep. to wean us off our addiction to coal and gas because us going it alone simply won't cut it. Already in New South Wales, about 25% of households have rooftop solar that have done done the right thing for their power bills and for climate change. And yet that's only about 4% of New South Wales emissions. 
Mm-hmm. So even if we get to every single roof in Australia or New South Wales having solar, we still will have a huge amount of you know, heavy industry and retail and commercial that's reliant on coal. And so that's why we really need to see action from the government. Yeah. Um, it's the, and the feedback loops that are at play uh, are some of the most worrying aspects. When the, say, from the yield uh, from arable land decreases, farmers will have no, uh, will have to farm more intensively. When sea levels rise, we lose seagrasses, a valuable blue carbon stock. Uh, the report presents a picture where things stay the same for a while, then get very bad very quickly. Is that accurate? Yeah, I think that's right. And and one other thing that's related to that is, you know, each time the IPCC or each time, you know, climate scientists put out new reports on the latest projections of climate change, yep. the projections have gotten worse and yep. they're happening more quickly. So we're starting to, you know, climate impacts are starting to accelerate, but reaching thresholds that, you know, decades ago scientists didn't predict would happen for a very, very long way into the future. So that's hugely worrying if even what we've, you know, talking about now could end up being quite conservative. So we really need to do everything we can right now yep. to act on climate change because the longer we leave it, the harder it's going to be. The report has a special mention for the threat faced by koalas. Uh, we had a special creature feature in July where we spoke to a Dr Christine Hoskins about the plight of the koala. Would you be able to remind our listeners very quickly about why they should be concerned about this Australian icon? Yeah, you're right. It is such an icon. So koalas are really at risk from um, fire because of the hot, well, bushfires, but also hotter temperatures from climate change. So the Pilliga Forest, the biggest temperate woodland left in eastern Australia, um, populations of koalas there have crashed because of massive heat waves that we had back in 2009. Um, the animals simply haven't adapted or evolved to live in the kind of temperatures yeah. that they're experiencing when we have you know, weeks and weeks on end above 35 degrees, they just can't cope with that. And so we really are at risk of losing koalas in huge parts of New South Wales from climate change and also from the destruction of their habitat. Yeah, yeah. Um, So is this future unique for New South Wales or can other states probably expect something similar? Yeah, I think other states can certainly expect something similar. However, the um, the impacts of climate change do vary. Like across New South Wales, they vary quite considerably from <laughs> the north to the south and out to the west. So certainly each area will have their localised impacts, but overall we can expect um, to see less rainfall over winter, um, particularly in more inland New South Wales, and we can expect to see hotter temperatures um, and hence more extreme bushfires, more sort of freak extreme weather events. So, you know, the nuance might be different in, in yeah. different regions, but the overall trend is pretty similar. Okay. And I guess this is more a strategic question. Were you ever worried that such a grim prediction might just freak people out so they so they tune out? Yeah, yeah, that certainly is a worry, and that's why when I talk about climate change, I talk about the solutions. Yes. Um, because... Yeah. You know, the benefit that we have now is, like, clean energy is cheaper than coal. Um, So it's actually cheaper if we um, get our energy from clean, renewable sources than it is relying on dirty coal. So the solutions are within grass. You know, no longer do we have to rely on technology of the future. We have the technology now. But what we lack is just the will to make it happen. So 
that's why it's really important that all of your listeners across Australia realise you're not alone in being concerned about climate change, yep. uh, but that you do need to get active. You do need to talk to your MP about it. Okay. And finally, one last question. You're, are, you, are you lucky enough to get out of the office in, in, in this line of work and kind of operate in the field of New South Wales? Well, not as much as I'd like, but I certainly do get out as much as I can, yeah. Yeah, that's great. Um, so thank you so much for coming on the show, Daisy. Uh, I think Hello, Daisy. Oh, thanks it's so much been for having me, Kurt. I appreciate Hi. the opportunity to talk to your listeners. Daisy, just while you're there. Hello. Oh, Daisy's gone. Sorry. Yeah. Oh, you are there. Yeah. Good. I wanted to ask you, have you ever seen a lyrebird? Yes, I have. I've seen lots of lyrebirds. Tell us about them, because this program is called In the Land of the Lyrebird, and I'm sorry I budged in on Kurt, but I just want to gather as many sightings as possible. Tell us about it. Oh, beautiful. They're quite common where I go bushwalking in the Blue Mountains. You can see them quite often. They've got these huge feet that are very um, reminiscent of dinosaurs um, and sort of these beautiful, incredible um, tail feathers that you often see if you're off on a bushwalk. You can see the tails are just the feathers lying by themselves and knowing that the live birds is around is pretty pretty cool. They're an amazing bird. Yeah. I, I just wanted to end on that note because we are talking about forests and really we do have wonderful forests and everybody can still go out and see them. It's not as if they've all died just because climate change is on the horizon. Um, I'd like people to go out mm. and see them more. So then I think that... Do you think that would help people get more active? Oh, I think so, yeah. Unless you've been out and you see and you love nature, what are you going to do to protect it? Um, I think it's really important that people get out and see our beautiful bushland and ocean and, and have a really sort of personal connection with nature. It's just vital. Okay, thank you very much, Daisy. Uh, thanks, Daisy. Okay, so we're, we're going thank to... You. Thanks, Daisy. Bye-bye. Um, so I think can we just have a little bit of lyrebird music now, um, Andy, and then we'll do the outro. Okay, listeners, I hope you've been enjoying this program in the land of the lyrebirds. It is very dire, but we also wanted you to remember the beauty of it and just bringing you that sound. I hope you look on our website for the podcast because there's a beautiful YouTube video of the lyrebird doing his thing, which is just fabulous. Tonight I'd like to thank our guests, Paul Payton from the Southeast Forest Alliance, Heather Keith from ANU, 
Steve Meacher from the Great Forest National Park, <clears throat> Daisy Barham from the Nature Conservation Council. I'd also like to thank the team tonight, which is behind the scenes, Jody and Roger, who really help make the podcast. And there's a lot of to and fro of emails about exactly how to get the right photo and get the right wording and so they really put a lot of effort into it and I hope you then pass on those podcasts to friends. I always say salut Babette because she's the only person who ever sends me an email or regularly sends me an email to say just to what she thinks and it's not always complimentary, she often gives me a critique of the show and I really appreciate that and if you can't do any sort of activism at all maybe you could just send us a line occasionally to radio team at bze.org um, you know just to encourage us to keep going because we do try to bring you a variety of speakers and that's just the best we can do um, so thanks to Jodie and Roger who encourage us and do the podcast also thanks to Andy on panel and Kurt who's been with me today in the studio doing the interviews and over to you Kurt for what's on right um, so Vivian told me about a group called Gecko and now that stands for Gungara. Environment Centre Office. It's a grassroots community group based in the small town of Goongara in far east Gippsland, Victoria. Uh, their credos is using a variety of strategies, including education and raising public awareness, political lobbying, non-violent direct action, citizen science and forest monitoring, we can act to protect high conservation value forests from logging. I've been spending a bit of time in Gippsland recently and the area they're talking about, the Kurak Forest, is a rare pocket of rainforest. It's, it's really, really gorgeous. Uh, rolling wooded hills, towering eucalypts and these ferns which have a v- vibrant, very, very deep green. It's really beautiful. Um, unfortunately, it's under threat and since the late 1990s, the logging industry in Victoria has been exempt from adhering to federal environment laws that protect our nationally threatened wildlife. Huge sections are earmarked for logging and in the process destroying the habitat of endangered forest owls, uh, potteroos and gliding possums. There is an email campaign at the moment to email Premier Andrews and Environment Minister Frydenberg to tell them not to continue the Regional Forest Agreement, which is the the exemption. Uh, If you have time, please head to www.email gecko.org.au and click on the Take Action tab and tell Andrews and Frydenberg how important these forests are and the green capital they can they contain. So please head to www.geco.org.au And I've got one last thing, Kurt. I noticed on their website they're taking tours in next weekend. Oh. The uh, You know, the what is it, the Melbourne Cup weekend? Yeah, long weekend. Uh, long weekend. So if you really are a keen bushwalker and you haven't been to that forest, if I was young and I had the right boots, I would be going. <laughs> <laughs> so it sounds really good. It's really so, beautiful. It's a really beautiful area. Yeah, I haven't been there either. And I've just had a recent, just got a text from my cousin. I remember, listen, as I said, that he went into the forest in New Zealand and he just sent me a little text saying the Maori guide was singing to them in the night. She was singing them into the forest, which was to warn the king of the forest that they were coming. So isn't that magical? And couldn't we do the same thing here and just be as good as New Zealand? (laughs) So thank you very much for listening tonight. And thanks to Andy and Kurt. It's so much fun doing this program. We really love doing it. So 
stay tuned for the next program and tune in next Monday for a program on Bangladesh and disaster, which you will notice the mainstream media has not been covering really very well. It's an ongoing massive historic disaster in Bangladesh, but they are doing really very well. They've got magnificent programs in place and I'm going to speak to one of their leaders there. So stay tuned and join us next Monday for the Beyond Zero Emissions Show. Beyond Zero Emissions is a not-for-profit research and education organisation. We design blueprints for a zero emissions economy. As climate change action becomes an emergency, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero emissions energy, zero emissions exports and industry, zero emissions transport, zero emissions buildings and zero emissions land use. Podcasts of our shows contain a who's who of community action and climate solutions. They're all available on the web at bze.org.au. We'd love your ideas for this show, so contact us at radioteam at bze.org.au or even write to us, care of Radio 3CR, 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy, Victoria. You can make that attention, BZE Radio.